Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Craig Settles, and you're with us today on Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. We are covering topics, everything related to broadband and how to get broadband into more places where broadband needs to be. I'm here actually at the um, SHLB show, which is a conference, a coalition of folks all involved with with uh, broadband, and it's been an interesting two days of uh, discussions and lectures and so forth, and you know a lot of good gathering uh, information and networking. And then yesterday we had um, a bit of a surprise at lunch uh, when we discovered that there's a there's a new fund out there, a new source of uh, investment for broadband, and it's a very interesting project that is behind all of this. And uh, I figured let me jump on the stick really quick and and answer some of the questions that people have been asking me about, you know, what's going on, how much money is it, how can we get some of it. So I would try to go to the source. I have today as our guest uh, Mark Ansbury, who is the president of Gigabit Squared. And Gigabit Squared is the private sector company that in partnership with uh, Gig.U is making this uh, this whole program happen. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Well, great. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. No worries. No worries. This is like breaking news. You know, I'm so, <laughs> so jazzed about this thing. So, so let's cut to it. What do you have? How did it come together? And and what can we expect out of the the back end? Uh, well, well, I got to tell you, Craig, this has been an interesting journey for us. Um, we we first got involved with this. Um, the end of the end of last year, and what what happened was is that Blair Levin, uh, with the consortium of universities, got together and they said, you know what, if we're going to impact broadband, we've got to do something about it. And universities are the cornerstone of a lot of innovation. Why can't we help? Mm-hmm. And in the creation of Gig.U, what they said then is, why don't we submit create an RFI request for information? and see what the community is going to do. Let's send it out to the vendors, let's send out providers, you know, let's invite everybody to a meeting and see if they're going to participate. And so, you know, all the big providers were there and a lot of the vendors were there and and we had the opportunity to be there. And what we saw out of this in the consortium was a, a combined interest, you know, to get it done, but the real need to create a roadmap. You know, what is this what does it really take to deploy broadband in our communities? And we responded to the RFI. We built a consortium. We actually came sort of a self-organized uh, team of uh, vendors and partners and people who have really done this before. You know, we've done this over and over in multiple communities. So we brought G4S. You know, they helped uh, Chattanooga. They helped Lafayette. We work with Juniper. We work with Level 3. We work with Alcatel-Lucent. We mm-hmm. work with Calix. We brought the right kind of vendors to the table that we knew we can really implement a, a successful broadband implementation. And by putting them together, then what we also needed to do was to create a financing vehicle that could help fund this. But in response to R5, we approached this as, you know, the communities have to demonstrate the need for mm-hmm. broadband. If you can demonstrate the need, we can create the right business model to, to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after the R5 and after the response, we started talking to the universities. And one of the things we realized right away was, you know what, we really have to lay out the roadmap for them. I mean, we can't just tell them what this is about and what they need to do. We need to give them a roadmap, and we need to give them a, a become a catalyst for them in actually executing a strategy. So we spent some time developing a number of financial vehicles, working with banks, working with private investors, just to get an idea of what kind of structure do we need to put together to you know, really put something on the table for, for the university communities. And everybody loves the idea of universities being part of that process. Um, so what we were able to do is identify a program structure. We were able to identify an investment strategy and a model to where we could put $200 million to work with the right partners. And so what we've done now is actually develop a request for proposal. We've submitted that to the gig.u universities so that they could structure their programs and activities, work with their municipalities, work with their other local stakeholders to come up with a strategy. And and for us, it's about them participating in that engagement. So we took a page out of Google's playbook, mm-hmm. and uh, we just want to make sure it's a little more structured and that it fits a you know a, a good strategy, and that we can develop something that has long-term sustainability. Okay. So let me get a couple of well, actually, let me get a little background because I mean I've known you for a while and you've been at this broadband stuff for a while. Um, you started 
well, let me rephrase that. When we met, you were with one community, <laughs> and right. that's the. But yeah, I'm guessing you did stuff in broadband even before then. I, you know, I've I've been in the business for longer than I want to say. I've okay. got a great hair to prove it. We won't force you. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Um, you can guess, but um, no, I've been in the industry for quite a number of years, and and actually served as director of telecom for the state of Texas, uh, and. I've been in the public sector, I've been in the private sector, started a carrier in the late 90s, you know, I've been in the nonprofit sector, and that's where we met, mm -hmm. um, and actually trying to create a new innovative business model, which we did with One Cleveland, which then became One Community. And and that actually really opened my eyes to lots of different ways to do this. There was no single plan. Mm -hmm. What we saw is that you can get community stakeholders to get together, you can aggregate demand and create a real viable business model for implementing broadband infrastructure, which then permeates to the community. Mm -hmm. You know, how to get everybody to get ubiquitous access, right. Right? which is the real goal here at the end of the day. And, and you want to get this in a fashion that is symmetrical. You want to make sure that all people have access to equal capability and services because that's where innovation really comes in. Mm -hmm. So so in essence, at One Community, what we were able to do as a nonprofit, we were able to you know, uh, get grants, we were able to raise some capital, we did some borrowing, we, we got stakeholder investment, and we created a model that everybody contributed. And over six years, we uh, brought in $150 million. We created a 2,500-route-mile uh, fiber network. We connected healthcare, we connected schools, we connected, you know, government. Mm -hmm. This was even before stimulus. Right, right, really right. That's right, because we met before the stimulus yeah. thing was, was a done and, deal. And, and stimulus became an accelerator. Right. And it was very helpful. But one of the things we saw and why we're so, we created Gigabit Squared is we realized that through all that stimulus, which was $7.2 billion invested in deploying broadband, was largely focused on middle mile. It didn't focus on that last mile, which is really the connection you need to be able to create you know, a high capacity in communities. Right. So that's the fiber to the home kind of strategy. And what we also saw through this process, you know, we have the AT&Ts in the universe and we had uh, Fios with Verizon and that. But, you know, they're not everywhere, and, and, in fact, they're not building to all their communities. Right. You know, they're building largely Tier 1 in some select communities. And there was this, this sort of gap for everybody else. What do they do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see the challenges in municipal networking. We see, you know, opportunities. We see states sort of banning the opportunity for municipalities to participate. Mm -hmm. So we've got to create a new wave. We've got to create a vehicle that helps bridge the gap between what I call the public mm -hmm. and the private sector in such a way that we can create partnerships, right? And we can create investment vehicles that leverage the the public investments that are already there. You know, they've already got some costs. They're spending in services. They're spending in, you know, aggregate capacity, and put that together with private capital and create a multiple so that you know the private capital is large investor in the infrastructure, right? Which enables then more advanced broadband services in the community. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to break it down as I see it for uh, for the audience. And you can tell me if I'm if I'm spot on or not. <clears throat> so, gig.u the, the the driving premise there was that if you had a creative entity that had access to high speed networks, you could create in essence a sandbox, for lack of a better word, that would be able to um, foster the development of applications. Right, is right good, good, is so I, far. I I think that's a good okay. Part of it. And then when I looked at the RFI, the RFI was saying, okay, we want to foster more of these environments, more of these sandboxes. And I know that from other people that I talked to um, about responding to the RFI, you know, the big question was always about money. It's like if we do this exercise, if we create these pilots, if we create these projects, who is going to have the money to help bring those? Um, to, to market, yes, and so there was there was sort of this thing of you know well where's the money? We understand now the process of the sandbox, if you will. Where's the money? Right. And so um, and then what's interesting? I also I just wrote a report on finding alternative uh, avenues for funding broadband, which you know steps aside from the grant process and sort of the traditional, if you will, funding to look at getting community investors, working with community foundations, and so forth, and the thread that goes through that is um, if you find people who are committed to the concept, you make investors out of them, uh, and you can raise a fairly decent amount of money 
um, both in uh, at the community level and at an institutional level if you you know use that first round of money that you raise and create a, a you know a viable starting project it's kind of like uh, what EC fiber is doing yes right very much they, so. they they've gone out um, they raised enough money in three separate rounds to build enough of a network to get enough customers to then start creating applications and proving the value and then they want to at some point go into an institution or an institutional investor and say we've got a viable model and we've got demand. I think it's what Blair talked about yesterday where um, the network's chasing demand versus, you know, they, they got this right. network and everybody's trying to figure out, well, how do we build demand for it? So yesterday's announcement seems to be then the culmination of the the, the last missing part, which is, you know, a clear path to money. Not necessarily everyone will get it granted. <laughs> but but that kind of completes that loop of um we 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 use some resources, we use some local folks, we create a network, we create applications, we prove a case, and then we go out and we petition or lobby for money. And it's not necessarily government money, it's you know it's private sector money, which I understand has certain uh values. I have a, a community oriented question about that. But I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, reiterating what the the, the logic behind all this is and where we are. You know, you're uh, you're really on target to what we put together as an RFP for the gig youth communities. Right. It was the idea that a community has underutilized assets. How do you put those to work? That community has a certain pent up service demand. That the community has the capability to aggregate capacity and demonstrate the need and value for broadband. And in doing that, then you can create the financial vehicles. You don't care if it's public, private, grant. You know, it's you can create the vehicle that justifies the value proposition for bringing that kind of capital to the table to help build out the network. Right. And so it's it's a it's an old business paradigm. I mean, mm-hmm. really. And my partner, I have to quite say, uh, Robert Jennings, <clears throat> he's uh, he's really gotten me to think of this really differently. It's no different than being a developer. Mm-hmm. A developer builds a strategy. He helps bring the right parties to the tables. You know, they're construction parties, they're engineers, they're architects, they're designers, they're users, consumers, they're financial. He brings those together. And and in, and he can just simply do that. That's part of the development process. Or he can be an investor in the process and actually help, you know, to implement the program and the mm-hmm. project, a new building, whatever. And he can actually be the owner of the project and actually build it, own, and operate it. Mm-hmm. When we look at digital infrastructure, it's no difference than building. You're putting in infrastructure in place. As a digital developer, we look at this and say, you know, we can help communities develop mm-hmm. the strategy, help them put the right tools, practices together, the right business sort of structure so they can go out and get the right capital. Um, we can, in this case, in GigU, what we're offering to be is an investment partner. We're saying we'll invest in that. Mm-hmm. And we already know that even some of the gig communities can come back to say we don't really want to be we'll, – we want to partake in this and we will contribute to this but we don't want to operate it, so you operate it for us. Right. So so we see lots of different business models happening as a result of the work that we're doing. What we're really trying to do with this model in our particular paradigm, and there's lots of paradigms, mm-hmm. lots of different business strategies, is demonstrate that this can be done in multiple communities, that it's not just one. You know, Google's doing one community. Right. Okay, how do you do this in five or six or ten, or how does somebody else replicate the model when it's so different and mm-hmm. things have to adapt? And what we want to demonstrate through this project is you can have lots of different funding vehicles, lots of different contribution, different business makeups, like any development project. You just have to know that there's a structure. How do you build the structure that's right for that community? Mm-hmm. And then find the right resources to execute. Right, okay. So <clears throat> I'm going to shift just a little bit. I want to walk through then to make sure I understand the the, the process from here. So. Um, Gig.U, I think, currently has 35, 36 members. In talking to Blair yesterday, he said, you know, it's um, it, it was capped initially just so they could get the thing up and running, right? They didn't want to have it too massive and couldn't be uh, manageable. So they capped, I guess, initially 36. They formed some more structure. They got feedback and so forth. Now they are opening it up to a, you know, a wider audience of, of colleges and the idea being that the college is sort of the the anchor innovation tenant, if I can coin a new phrase, 
but basically they will be sort of that driving force, and then the community around them will be the you know potential buyers, the potential subscribers, the potential you know other organizations that would use broadband. So that's kind of that's the, that scenario. Um, June fifteenth, I believe it is, is the the, the deadline. July thirty first. Is it July thirty first? July thirty first oh, okay. and October thirty first. We decided to do this in two ways. Okay. Because we knew it was summertime, and you know, a lot of colleges. This is true. They've kind of gone away for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there a uh, cost to be a member of Gig.U? Um, there is a cost. I, you know, I'd have to ask Blair on what that okay. is. Um, uh, there's a member fee to do that, but um, I think as more universities join, the dynamics of that changes. Right. Okay. Um, and then I know that. You know, the initial 35, which is really the reason we focus on Gig.U at the, at the moment, we needed to have a constrained environment, right, to, to respond to. We couldn't respond to a 1,000 communities. We're not a Google. Right, right, right. Um, so we wanted to have an environment that we knew we could work with, that could adapt, and we could build a program with. Mm-hmm. And that's where Gig.U really comes in. And They have the relationship with the university institutions. And as you heard, and I just kind of want to comment, I, I said this a little bit in the announcement yesterday, is that universities are known for innovation, right? right? They're known for creating, you know, education and workforce kinds of things. But what we often forget is that universities also are part of the community and that community innovation. Right. You know, the professors, the students, they're they're all part of that community and often affect the innovation that goes on within the community at a grassroots level. Mm-hmm. So it's just as important to engage them and they become that engagement partner that helps really promulgate these kinds of concepts and ideas further and further into the community. Okay. So at this juncture between now and the 31st and now in October, people who are interested should either uh, rally their community to rally their college or they should rally the college to, you know, pull it all together and first become a member of Gig.U, then um, get the RFP, which they will then, it will have all the information and parameters for what you're looking for and so forth and so on. Um, And then they will um, submit the RFP, and then you will have, I'm sure, spelled out the the parameters for how they will be critiqued and judged and eventually finally awarded and so forth. And then after, it will be a ceiling on how much they can respond for? Um, So we're going to tailor. So this is a good question, and I'd like to speak a little bit detail to it. Um, We have not set a fixed amount on a program, you know, so we don't know what one community is going to look like versus another. Mm -hmm. We might have a community that's $100 million. Right, right. We might have a community that's $5 million. I mean, it... This can vary pretty dramatically. And right. we're dealing, too, with some colleges that are in some small towns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not dealing with everybody in a Tier 1 community. In fact, we think the, the real opportunity here is the smaller community mm-hmm. because they're the ones that have the most need and the biggest demand where people aren't making that kind of investment. Right. So they can be the catalyst for the investment in these smaller towns, which also become the anchors for rural communities, et cetera, because mm-hmm. they're part of a larger region. Um, so, so in this particular case, we're going to be very flexible, um, you know, to the investment based on the right kinds of projects. They have to be sustainable. We're not doing a project that doesn't have a life cycle to it. We're not just doing an investment in a grant and say, hey, we're done. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. We want this to work. Right. So it's got to be of a size and a scope that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also kind of want to respond a little bit to your comment about joining uh, GigU. I can't speak for GigU or Blair. But I know that they are definitely looking to make this kind of model, you know, more expansive. They're mm-hmm. they're really hoping to help catalyze what's going on across America. That's why they're starting this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's over three thousand colleges out there, right? You know, so there's you know, a lot of potential folks that can could rally around and, and respond to this thing. Big need, big demand, right? And, what we would see is <clears throat> this is not our last announcement. This mm-hmm. is the first wave of right. something that if we can prove this with GigU and we can prove it with the GigU communities, that we could take this to the next level. Right. You know, we can we can raise the additional capital. We could raise the necessary support. Heck, we can justify a lot of this just on the basic business model mm-hmm. um, of these individual communities once we really prove the model in, that we're working with. Right. So okay. we see this as hopefully a a scalable and a replicatable strategy. Okay. So then, once again, just making sure I'm, I'm understanding the, the process. So I, Community A, and someone else, Community B, 
comes up and looks at this thing and, and collaborates and says, okay, we want to we we go for this. And so they should be prepared, based on what you're telling me, to make a case that shows how they're going to turn that money into innovation. I guess ultimately how will it you know, impact the community as a factor. But also someone needs to do some planning about how the network will sustain itself. Yeah, and that's um, so. This is where we leave it a little bit open. So, what we realize right now is that most of these communities are not prepared to do this on themselves. We, in this particular case, help them build the business model, the sustainability strategy, the operation strategy that supports and, and rolls out the network. And so, in that particular case, where that's why we're saying this is really kind of a public-private partnership. Mm-hmm. We and partner, we are going to provide a lot of the support and the expertise to get it done. So to get the finished product, to get the finished once product. they get funded, okay, right. Well, and and really, it's our operational operational support of this that that helps pull this all together. So so in the end, you know, we really and in, in most of the communities we anticipate, at least in this first six round, in this round of six, mm-hmm. is that we are probably the owner operator with maybe some partnership investment, some collaborative, you know, public private component to that, and and that's because we want these to be very successful. Right. Um, we do anticipate that we're going to have opportunities in the future to work with municipalities, let's say, that want to own the infrastructure, which we're good with. I mean, if mm-hmm. the community wants to do that, we can definitely help. Again, we're a developer. Right. But, um, you know, to do it right and they get this so that we can get the next level of finance, we want them to work. Because well, you have to, have to prove the case and so forth. Exactly. But in this uh, that you see being the the owner. I mean, mm-hmm. is, it, is it possible that someone could come in with a proposal for, in essence, a community that can have have identified, you know, potential so forth and so on, to where that will not be an issue. In in, sure. in the community-owned scenario, often what's happening is that the community says we want to own. This is an asset for the. We're going to go out and hire someone to, you know, lay the cable. We're going to hire someone to run the service and support and and and, and run some of that business operation. So it's yeah. not always the case. Now, Chattanooga is the sort of the case of the utility, right. where in that scenario, the utility is running the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think your average community absent utility will want to, um, you know. In essence, outsource mechanical parts, but it kind of comes back to the issue of, um, you know, ownership of it because they see it as a community asset, that whole infrastructure and, and so forth. And which actually is sort of an offshoot question, which is in the Silicon Valley mode of things, if an investor comes in and puts in, whether it's angel investment or it is, you know, the main chunk of money, was that series B or two or whatever, um, that then they want a part ownership of the eventual business and then right. some selection on the board and this and that and so forth. In your scenario, in your program, um, will, the vest- will the investors be owners? And then what does that say about the nature of the network then if we're we're talking in a community broadband sense. Well, so so let me step back and, and then I'll kind of answer that question. Okay. The purpose of this program of Gig.U is that we're really investing in the owner uh, and operation of the network. We're providing facility infrastructure and service as part of this. Mm-hmm. Our commitment in that process is that we'll provide an open access network. Our commitment in this process is that we'll provide community gateway for applications and services. Right. Um, so in this particular case, you can view us as that Carrier 3.0. We're an alternative carrier model to actually build that inf- build, operate, manage that infrastructure within the community, but but really working in a philosophical partnership with the the community we're working with. Right. Um, but we do other work. This is just one program, right? We right. work with utility companies. We work with other municipalities, and under those scenarios where they're self-guided, mm-hmm. they really know what they want to do. Right. Um, they've already self-organized. We help them just like any developer. If you just need us to consult, design, support, oper- you know, engineer, operate, whatever, and you want to own the network, that's great. Mm-hmm. But we're making a very strategic investment in Gig.U. Right. And because of that, we're taking, let's say, a much more 
proactive role in this, again, because we want to demonstrate right, right, success. Right. But when we work with a municipality, we can play a different role. We might be a partial investor. We might be, you know, um, some, uh, you know, an operator mm-hmm. of the network. We might simply be a consultant and engineering firm helping right. support the network. So we definitely support the municipal. We support the community utility roles, and and we adapt to those kinds. Of, that's why we describe ourselves as almost a digital economic development company. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so if if I'm in a community that is say less comfortable with outside ownership is kind of hip on the uh, community ownership. They should probably wait till round two, actually, uh, or at least, uh, well, maybe think about waiting until. Well, round you know, on that kind of a model, I'll be real frank with you. We do with those today. Right. We don't have to go through this RFP process. Right. Okay. That can be a direct discussion. Right. Someone just calls up and say, "We." That's a self-organized model. Right. Okay. See, what we're doing with GigU is those communities that aren't so self-organized, giving mm-hmm. them a catalyst to begin to organize the community around the country. Right. A, a kickoff structure. You, if you got will. it. Yeah, and and when communities are their own catalyst, they don't need that. They need a different set of right. capabilities. Okay. And see, what we're seeing is that the world right now, and relative to broadband, is kind of slow. We're, right. We're, and when I say slow, it's not just the bandwidth. Our community ability to execute and to begin to deploy broadband. Is slow. Right. Right. We're being beat by, you know, Europe, by Asia, by you know everybody else. They're investing billions of dollars behind infrastructure and deployment. If we don't do this in America, if we don't create a catalyst for this, whether it's the private sector or a combination of the private and public sector, whatever it is, if we don't create a catalyst for this, we're going to be way behind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to build not to what the demand is today, but what the demand is going to be tomorrow. Right. Because it takes time to develop the programs, the implement the, you know, capabilities, then to educate and to train and to, you know, really put them to work. Right. So we just want to get ahead of this curve. We want to become a catalyst for promoting more communities thinking about this and doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 frankly, from our perspective here, if it's superior than the municipality, the university, for us, it's about you know really creating an environment where we can see a, a fundamental shift. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I, it's an interesting uh, approach. You know, I understand there there are different. I tend to, I guess, run the the middle ground, you know, I have people on the on the right, I have people on the left, as I point to the opposite direction, uh, that, uh, you know, have all these concerns about broadband and so forth, and, you know, and some are valid. I think fundamentally there is a, a strong um, interest in the, the community owning this as an infrastructure and asset. I can also see the value of an exercise such as what you're doing because it it creates a set of best practices in a sense. I mean, as you look at sort of you know the the GigU concept, you know, Blair and I had a conversation once where you know he was talking about you know anybody can do this, right? But what they're doing is they're putting it in a managed in a managed bat or managed uh, you know uh, research environment to you know both manage it and then also learn from it and so forth. Where the the end result is you have. You know, if everyone's doing some, you know, good note taking along the way, you have a set of best practices. So this, in essence, can be a similar kind of thing. I mean, you can see what works as it goes into a, you know, investment and moving forward stage. So, you know, I think you're on with the best practice. I've sort of changed that in my mind in language and said a roadmap because okay, yeah. when we were speaking across the country, it was, you know, we have the human capacity, we have the financial, or we don't have the technical. We don't something we have, something we don't have. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to take the next step. We don't know where to go to get it done. Right. So so a best practice model gives you kind of a, a cloud framework to do this mm-hmm. and sort of that. A roadmap gives you a suggested next step. Right. And what we want to do is to help communities understand what those next steps need to be. Right. That way they can take the best practices and actually put them to work. It's the, the, We kind of call this the practical side of it, right? Right, right. How do you, how do you really get it in the grassroots and make this work, make it, make it you know, progress? Right. Um, so by creating this kind of a roadmap, what we hope to do is there are lots of different ways you can do it. There's lots of different paths, but there are certain decision points that you have to make certain kinds of, right. you know, you have to decide, am I going to be a public or a private? Am I going to use public capital or private capital? Am I going to finance this? You know, what's my payback period? What kind of rate structure? What kind of services do I want to deliver? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to put that all together and you have to make your choices along the way. Right. And make a decision and then move forward to the next level. And you know what? You're going to make wrong decisions. Communities, 
I don't care if it's private sector or public sector. We all make decisions, and sometimes they're wrong, and we have to adjust. Right. You have to take course correction. You know, you have to take different actions and make changes. Don't be afraid to make the decision. Make it early. Move forward with that plan. If you need to do some course correction, correct, and move on. Right. And it's sort of, you know, when I talk to people, you know, I'm not trying to give people the answer. I'm not the answer guy. I'm more of the question. I like, what <laughs> questions do we need to ask at which point to then come to whatever your respective best <clears throat> options are? Right. And, uh, and then so, you know, this all fits. I mean, I can see it in a master plan how this whole thing has a purpose. And, by the way, <clears throat> one of my uh, more uh, loyal and consistent listeners from the U.K. has highly endorsed uh, this idea, I guess they they have been working with universities for a while, trying to get you know broadband in and so forth. And I think she refers to it as a as a parish, a digital parish pump. You know, you sort of <laughs> you're working this digital thing with this relationship with the university, and you're creating a way to kind of pump out the you know the end result that you're that you're looking for, which is good. And I should also mention we're uh, we're rolling on to the to the halfway point. Uh, if folks want to call in and ask a question, uh, there is a call in number on your should be on your screen. And um, what is this number? Maybe we'll put it out there: three two three six seven nine zero eight four five. And there's no elevator music, which is probably good on one hand, but when you do call in and, and, and the system picks up, you don't hear anything. So don't panic and think that we've abandoned you. You just will have to be there for a little bit in silence, a Zen moment, if you will. Um, so let's talk about, um, do you have a general idea how many uh, universities are private versus public? Uh, you know, I don't have that number off the top of my head. Okay, but it is a mix, I would assume. I mean, I looked through the list one time, yeah. And it seemed like there was, so there are public, there are private, and uh, and so forth. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm going to field a couple of questions I got in sort of what I call early Twitter messages, which was, um, well, we talked about the government and the ownership, and, you know, is this a community asset? Are they building a community right. asset? I think we've kind of uh, talked that through. Um, but it is would be good to know, um, is, the, is the $200 million like full-on cash, Investment, or is that sort of calculated on some X number of hours of you know professional? No, we're we're the the approach that we're taking with this is that we're going to be investing real dollars to build the business. Okay, right. So these are bucks. These, these are like, these are dollars. Um, and these dollars and how they get spent are going to be defined by the particular program we develop with the GigU community. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of these are going to be pure. We got to build infrastructure as fiber to the home. Uh, some of these might be creating the open uh, gateway kind of strategy and open access model. Some might be service delivery on top of that, you know, mm -hmm. application-related. Um, we're doing one project right now, if you don't mind, I'll just talk about it. No, 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 please, please do. But with Case Western Reserve University, we're doing a senior wellness center. Mm -hmm. And part of the objective there is Case is doing a research project with University Hospital. And what they're doing is connecting via big bandwidth, you know, fiber connection to mm -hmm. the senior center. We're actually putting fiber in the center and connecting all the units. And part of this is a health and wellness management. And part of this is, you know, uh, a critical care. You know, mm -hmm. how do we manage critical care? Because you have assisted living and you have senior and you have all kinds of different conditions. And getting them out of those conditions and taking them into the doctor or taking them into the emergency room, you know, can create more complications. Right. And so if you can manage that more effectively and help in the process, you might actually save lives, prolong lives, and make a better quality of life for someone. Right, exactly. So that's a you know quick example. Mm -hmm. Now, are you going to do anything that would say create a um, a documentation as you go, but a public documentation? In other words, is there a way that people can watch <coughs> as you guys do what you do and be able to go to a website or a bulletin board or something and get? This information, like so, how do you, I guess how are you going to do the knowledge transfer? You're going to learn a bunch of stuff, but you know that's a that's a great question. I wish I had a perfect answer for you, but I don't. <laughs> okay. um, but you know, we've described when we first created the company, we wanted to describe this as open um, digital economic development. And mm -hmm. What we meant by that is that this would be a shared practice, right? And to do that effectively means that you need to create a communication medium that does share effectively the kind of things and captures the information along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have spent a lot of time talking about it, a lot of time thinking about it. We have not yet implemented the strategy of how we're going to promote it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but we did have some experience a few years ago with the Knight Foundation on the idea of shared best practices. And so we we will be implementing, um, uh, you know, for our members and for the community at large, uh, something that opens up the kimono a little bit and mm-hmm. says, this is how development works. This is how projects get off the ground. This is how you can do it in your community. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, we're getting messages and stuff from all over the place here. It's pretty interesting. Um, one of the shortcomings I felt of the uh, broadband stimulus process and to a certain extent the Google process was that by nature of both entities, you know, the federal government and Google, they created a um, a response path. They basically created an application. You complete the application, or in the government's case, you had the NOFA, right? Yeah, I think it was a NOFA, right. where you basically had all the parameters for how you responded to that. Um, what I felt at the time, which I definitely feel, especially, you know, being here at this particular conference, right. is that um, you can respond well to an application process, but the application process may not be what best prepares you to run the business. And in fact, someone earlier today, uh, I guess they were called in as sort of this crisis savior person because the entity, you know, they had gotten money, but when and they even started building out the network. But somewhere along the way, someone said, "Well, you don't really have a business case here. You know, you don't have this whole thing tied up in terms of how you're going to deal with the last mile." Um, and so, you know, he looks at this and goes, "You know, well, they're right. Number one." But number two, you know, we both kind of, you know, quickly came to a decision that a lot of it was because they didn't do the effective planning. But there was no time to do planning. Right. You know, Google had its time frame, uh, and, um, and and the government had theirs, and so you didn't have a lot of time. I mean, I, I basically broke it down. And you had people who had been planning for a couple of years, right? Like for example, Open Cape. I was I was just up there last week. Um, Good group, by the way. Yes, indeed. They're definitely on it. There are some who were thinking about it and sort of preliminarily planning, so they were able to put together called a reasonable plan, and not necessarily by round one of the federal stimulus, but by round two. And then you just have people who are responding to there's money. Let's throw something <laughs> against the wall because, yeah, we may burn some hours, but if we get this money, it'll be like you know winning the lottery. And I think that, and I'm, I don't know if any of those in the latter group got funded, but those to me are the problem children because they haven't um, they haven't planned properly because they had no time and not necessarily even an incentive because they really weren't getting graded on a plan, right? There was sort of vague talk about you know we like to see this be sustainable, but like number one, what the heck does that mean when you're on you know nose to the grindstone? But there wasn't really um, you know that component of it. When you talk about sustainability, that you want to fund something that's sustainable, how much are you going to look at the business planning of the group? So that's a great question, too. Um, and, and this is probably why we're more proactively engaged in this. I mean, we we are going to be part of that process. Okay. So what we're really looking for for the gig communities is to give us sort of a, a matrix of resources, capabilities, um, you know, and things they would like to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. Community development, the activities, all the things that might make up the, the the role of a developer. Says, what kind of property do I build? Is this a just a broadband? Is it a property for gaming? Is it a property for the triple play? Is it a property for innovation? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you sort of take that in. What we will, will do with them is we will work to develop the business plan, mm-hmm. the technology roadmap the implementation and operation strategy around that. So we're going to be part of the planning process. Okay. Unlike like Google and unlike right. the others, they were they had a simple selection process. We're going to find right. the best community and then it's ours, we're done, and you follow this process and you finish. Ours is going to be much more collaborative. This okay. is about a public-private partnership. So in this way that there's ongoing communication, course correction, management of building the program. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a differentiator. It means it's not as easy. Right. It's a little bit more complex, which is why we wanted to narrow this down to 35 communities right. initially, because we felt we can manage that in that framework. You know, we're right. going to get maybe 15, 20 proposals, let's say, mm-hmm. for example. Um, you know, if this were 3,000, no way could we respond in the way we're responding. Right. It's more hands-on, more partner-oriented, you know, more in how do we make this work. Right. But it, So in some respects, it'll be... 
fewer people helped, but more people helped in the long term because what you do will be either replicable or you know people can learn from it or whatever, but there will at least be a process where before there wasn't one, and more people can take advantage of that and move the ball forward. We hope. I mean, well, all we're doing really is setting an example, right? Mm-hmm. And and what we want to do, uh, and what I learned a long time ago, the best example is to put it in practice. Right. So what we got to do here, and and really what Google's trying to do, and what BTOP tried to do, says let's go put this in practice. But in our in our role that we're trying to take is, let's show them what success is. Right. And then it's easier to achieve it the second time. Okay. So given the, the hip, oh, well, let me ask another question, more on the mechanical side, and I don't know how much of this you can or want to talk about, but how do you get the money? I mean, um, not all the particulars, but I mean, you know, <laughs> was it like institutional you want me to give away the secret sauce? Not all, all of it, no. Hey, hey, you know, but, but I, I am curious because I just, you know, finished doing an exercise about getting investors, and there's like, you know, there were two different w- ways people went about that, so I'm just curious. So I will tell you in this business, you're you're always building Right, and you're always raising capital. That's story so life. it never stops. Right, um, and in this particular case, what we want to do is we realize that working with the universities, that they have, as a community, the opportunity to really create leverage financing. Mm-hmm. So, so we knew we needed a financial vehicle, and we went out and found an investment bank to work with, and we created a strategy. They like the university model. They like it. They gave us a structure to mm-hmm. work with, which was very good. And that's what we're doing with our RFP, is we're creating a structure okay. to get financing, to be able to bring in equity, to be able to bring in uh, debt, to you know, bring in you know, other contributions, whether they come through grants or other mm-hmm. sorts of things. See, we've decided that, and you know this, Craig, because we did this one one community, we've done it in other vehicles, is you have to create a broad range of resources right. and avail yourself to those. So where grants are an opportunity, we'll take advantage of that. In this case, what we're doing is we're just helping because we have the experience across all those financial right. vehicles of pulling them together effectively mm-hmm. and making them work. So our, our initial commitment of $200 million is based on the combination of some equity and leverage financing. Each of our deals will be different. So how much equity versus how much financing we're going to do are going to be really dependent on the mix of you know, what a community brings to the table, how much in-kind, how mm-hmm. much support, you know, and the things we need to do. Okay. Now, not I'm not sure if it'll matter, at, you know, except for to lawyers and accountants. <laughs> but is the money coming to you to them, or is it going directly to them? How's the we we're the we are the asset holder in this particular scenario for the service. Okay. I mean, in the programs that we're implementing here, the money comes to us through this process. We implement, manage, and operate. Okay. So so in truth, what we're doing is helping build a community asset. But we're, in effect, delivering that as an asset and as a service. Okay. So that's why I said in the beginning, what we're doing in this particular scenario is we're Carrier 3.0. Right. You know, but in this case, what we're trying to do this is in partnership with the community instead of, you know, we're the... We're building it, you buy it, and have a nice day. Right. Yes. Um, But the openness aspect of it is what keeps the competitive element. Well, and and so here's where we think about openness, and this is just my particular strategy and Mm -hmm. what I've kind of learned over the years. You know, we've always had this sort of concept and played with open in a very different way. We played with an internet peering, we played with it a little bit in a variety of different um, axiom. But Europe and other nations who have gone down this path, they've gone down that path, you know, with a full commitment, and a lot of times it's been with public support. Right. In the U.S., we have a competitive environment. Right. We do not have the public support, even with the stimulus, as, as much as it was, was really not the investment that, that we have in the Right. US. We're not Australia, basically. Right. And so, um, as a result of that, if we want to create open access in a competitive environment, it really requires us to change the paradigm of what open access means and change the paradigm to where alternate competitive carriers will adopt the use of a shared infrastructure. And we think that takes time. So, so... In the middle mile, it's maybe a little bit easier, but when you get into the last mile and you start building community networks, the way people differentiate themselves today is on their infrastructure and the services they can deliver based on the infrastructure they have. Right. And now what we're doing, and Blair has said this before, we've got to change the math because we've had these overbuilds. You know, right. The carrier overbuilt the cable company, the cable company overbuilt the carrier. They're done. They're not doing that anymore. You know, they've really said that this is kind of like the, the cap to this. You can't just keep doing this over and over again. At some point, that model breaks down. And we're kind of at this point that it's, 
it's broken. So mm-hmm. we're not seeing a lot of new investment. So the idea now of bringing fiber to the table, which is really the next overbuild that needs to happen, um, is is not happening. Mm-hmm. So so you know that's that the change. And then once we do that, what we think is going to happen is, you know, it's going to take three, five, seven years for the carriers as their infrastructure is no longer competitive. The services need to run over broadband fiber infrastructure. We'll see them start to adopt the other infrastructure that's there. And we're already seeing some examples. Um, you know, Time Warner's doing some interesting things with Chattanooga and gaming. You know, they want to do gaming kind of programs, realizing it's not on their network. Right. So you're going to see, I think, that emerge, but it's going to take a few years and some time and some trust. The other issue is, and what we find a lot of times is, you know, is that network going to be there? Is right. it going to be stable? Right. right. Is it going to be sustainable? And so the problem with, let's say, a major carrier using somebody else's infrastructure is they don't know if they're going to be around tomorrow. Right. And, and you know, and that's an issue. You know, price and what the service is going to cost is an issue. Yeah. But then you still come back to the issue, you know, to the thing of if there's only one provider, then your 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 cost isn't going to be very flexible or competitive. Right. I mean, so, you know, that's – got to tell you, I'm, I'm not – the wholesale works to some extent, but we haven't seen a lot of good wholesale models work in the U.S. And 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 the the and the issue of you know getting openness, we've all said that well that has to be wholesale. Well, I think it's a combination. I think that you can have an open access architecture and still be a vertical service provider. And what I mean by that is, I can provide my own triple play service, and you can compete on my network with your triple play service. But you know. You're going to compete on value and quality. Mm-hmm. All right, that's what we really want out of this. Right. So if I can keep the open access strategy on the physical infrastructure, I'm going to have a good product. If you have better product, then they're going to buy your product. Right. Then that's good for me because you're buying my infrastructure to deliver that better product. Right. So I'm okay with that because now now you have a business model that says you're covering your costs, you're paying for the infrastructure and services. You really it's a sustainable model. Right. Now I know you know one of the concerns I've heard expressed you know over the last couple of days is we get into situations or we have seen situations in some states where they will be the driver of the middle mile and but then they will also be the cherry picker of certain anchor institutions <laughs> and what ends up happening then is a smaller company uh, whether it's you know the, a smaller company that's been around for a while or it's a company that might you know some people just want to go into the business. <coughs> Well, if you've come by and you've put the middle mile in, that's good. If you come in and put the middle mile in, but you've also picked up all the um, anchor institutions, you know, the primary tenants on the network, you've made life, not you, you, but, you know, the, the, the process, the organization has made life difficult for the, the player that wants to come in and be able to, you know, have revenue opportunity. I mean, that's... Yeah. About as I guess I can get that one. But. That's uh, that's you know, and that, and that's actually uh, a pretty interesting assessment because, you know, I think one of the downfalls with stimulus and and nature, and I mean, I think it's a fabulous program. I think it's doing wonderful things for the nation, but but that model there, which really is in a way somewhat anti-competitive, it wasn't really structured in a way. There was an investment on the other side. In other words, they didn't make investment on the last mile side. They made investment in the middle mile side. And the real cost right. is on the last mile. So if you take away all the value, which you just said, right. you taking the anchor tenants, you create a disincentive for the last mile provider to build out additional capacity. Right. So there's got to be some balance there. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the middle mile providers that are out there today who are struggling with this model of revenue and sustainability and who to get are going to have to create a balance with the local access providers to be able to attract them to use the infrastructure to be part of this process. Right. And one of the things, and even NTI said this, you know, um, an anchor tenant, if they're connected through one of your providers, that's what they really wanted to facilitate. So it doesn't have to be that the middle mile provider is the direct connection for every anchor. Right. They're facilitating the connection to those anchor tenants. Right. So I think in some ways, um, middle mile providers are going to have to develop a partnership with their local access providers to facilitate that. Well, I think that that relationship between the middle mile and the last mile is probably going to be the most problematic side of this whole issue. I mean, you had um, 
you know, middle mile projects that were funded irregardless of last mile. Then you had last mile projects where I'm not sure where they're getting the backhaul from, but I assume it was, in part, you know, in people's proposals. But but this this disconnect, I mean, I've been writing about it for over a year right. now, of the middle mile, last mile, or as they say in Europe, the first mile and then the middle mile. But, yeah, uh, right, right. You know, really. And so, um, but it's a, it's a difficult, to me, it's, a difficult nut to buy. Even they take D.C. I mean, D.C. got a grant, one of the few urban, it's not the only urban community to get an infrastructure grant. They got, uh, you know, a 100 gigabit network. And they basically said, we're going to use this to support the poorest parts of the city, right? Well, the reality of life in America with incumbents, anyway, is that um, if you build that middle mile, but you say that what's going to be served is the poorest of the poor on the on the last right. mile thing. Who's going to go in there? Because people who wouldn't go in there before the stimulus aren't going to go in there now because it is no more attractive than it was before. And I've got you know I've talked to people here. I've talked to people at <coughs> Freedom to Connect where they were just beside themselves in in D.C. trying to get either a last mile provider, a last mile provider who was competent or their ability to somehow provide the service. Right. And the city's saying, but this is only middle mile, this is only middle mile, you right. can't, we can't serve the end user, we can't help you. It's kind of a mess. Yeah, I, you know, and, and unfortunately no program's perfect, right? There's always going to be gaps. And the fact is, is that that money wouldn't, you know, would have been difficult to get there in the first place. Right. And so now you have some capital going in that direction to help facilitate so we're at that next phase. How do you execute the real strategy? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're struggling with. Right. And and that's what we're trying to deal with a little bit with GigQ is we're saying that there are alternative ways to get the partners to come in right. and to invest. Um, but you have to find the right mix and the right balance, and you have to have a community advocate. Right. You, know, you have to have that sort of engaged community to be able to get that done. Right. So if we want to attract an ISP, let's say, for example, to build out, or we want to attract, you know, a, a CLEC or a, a cable company or whatever it is, we've got to create an environment for them. And, and, Greg, I'll go back to our early days of one community. One of the things that we started to do to attract carriers, you know, was that we realized we had to make the market for them. Mm -hmm. Because the big carriers, when you look at it, they have a 10-year plan. They right. have a five-year plan. They have the three-year plan. By the way, they have their capital plan. Yeah. Right? So they're, they don't move on a dime. Right. You know, they have you have to show them the ROI. What's right. the return on investment before they're willing to make that next step of investment? Right, and that's been a given for a while. So what we have to do, I mean, this is incumbent on all of us mm -hmm. out in the community, is we have to demonstrate where that ROI is. Right. And that has to come in collaboration with the community, the business model, the strategy, and partners. So from our perspective here, what we have to do is we have to do the market creation. Mm -hmm. We have to demonstrate to them the value proposition and where the markets are so that they can make use of them. So let's see. we got about seven minutes, so we can talk about this one, this next topic. Small providers. One of the... Um, you know, one of the things that I, RUS in particular, I think, has as its hallmark is that it is it has worked with a lot of small yes. providers. The FCC, for better or for worse, whatever you think about Universal Service Fund, has worked hard at getting rural, small, mom and pop entities out there providing the you know last mile phone service, if you will, and and supporting them in in that endeavor. Um, I feel like the upside is. The smaller companies, to me, are, one, most vested in the community, and I think they're also able to work and and provide a good service without the same cost structure because you don't have all the layers of bureaucracy and stuff that you have with a, you know, with the big, big incumbent. Um, you know, WISP are so proud of saying that, you know, they have built this stuff with sweat and blood and tears and no government <laughs> money, and, you know, which, again, I, I appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. Um in what you guys are doing, will there be, you know, a boost for the little, the smaller providers? Oh, well, you know, and that's another great question. Um, I think the real thing that we're trying to create here is that community environment that fosters that, right? Mm -hmm. That really enables the small to compete. And the big barrier in our business when we look at this is infrastructure. Right. So if we can take away that barrier, right, the core infrastructure piece, mm -hmm. then we're really enabling every service provider to come in and deliver the services that they want to deliver. Right. 
So, so I think in a way we want to foster that. We want to create the environment where that's really a true statement. And um, and and the challenge is that with the you know small uh, independents, and that is they feel that they have to own everything and they have to compete at all levels. And the question we're really asking is, do you have to compete at the infrastructure level? Is it really the service level you're competing, or are you competing at the infrastructure level? Right. And what we're all saying globally is. You know, the infrastructure should be ubiquitous, open it up, give us big pipes, and that's where innovation occurs. That's where new applications and new services all come from. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, in a way, if we create that test bed and expand that test bed to more than one community, what we're really saying is, okay, this can happen in multiple communities. Now you can deliver your services to all these communities in an effective way. You don't have to overcome that big infrastructure barrier. Right. And even for the large incumbent. I mean, I, I, I forgot who I interviewed for... Um I think it was uh, Mid-Atlantic Broadband Cooperative, right? And they were saying that um, the smaller telcos were all freaked out when they built the network. And they built the network and it got the small telcos business. And then seven years later, Verizon finally figured out, oh, well, maybe this is good for us too. You know, I think there's sort of a history of the larger companies taking forever to realize that, you know, you are not the enemy. You're not necessarily the kiss of death. But then having said that, you know, I think there's also, um, if you're going to foster the small business development, uh, you know, provider development, then maybe some of these smaller providers should get in on several of these RFPs because I think that's about the only way to, to play. I mean, to stand on the outside and say, well, you know, here's one more program or one more entity that doesn't like us, doesn't respect us, and won't support us, yeah. rather than all that moaning and groaning, then just get in there with a community and a university and figure out how you will be the project. You know, it's funny you say that because that's actually one of the things that we kind of promoted in our RFP was mm-hmm. local provider, local provider participation, support, engagement, become mm-hmm. part of that. Our willingness is such that we do a joint venture with them and they become part of the process. Right. Um, we'd open it up. They can be, you know, simply used as a service delivery mechanism. Um, and, and it's really true is that the uh, smaller communities, the, the very local providers, they are more connected. And, and this is about, I kind of go back to the model of Google. Google has been the global enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. And I love them to death. And they've got communities of interest that are global. And I think they're in the grandest experiment of all, and they don't realize it yet, or maybe <laughs> they do. But in Kansas, they have to talk about being hyper-local. Mm-hmm. They have to create a localized environment demand, and that's not as easy as building a global demand. Right, exactly. You know, different mindset, a different set of operations. And, and the people that know this are the small carriers who do this every day. Right. Because they're dealing with Joe's, uh, you know, shack over here, the coffee shop, the small business, the you know, grandma at home. That's what they do. Right. And they get it. And they know them, and they know them by name. Right. And th- you know that that sense of community is so powerful as part of the adoption. Mm-hmm. I think that really occurs, and they need to be part of this process. Right. All right. So we're running down here. We got about two minutes. What would be one, maybe two key pieces of advice? You know, if our listener is a university or our listener is, you know, community activist that wants to get broadband in, what are two things that help them deal with the, the RFP process? Um, well, from our perspective, it's really pretty simple. It's you know, aggregate capacity and demand. Mm-hmm. You know, which means rally the community in such a way that there's a demonstrated uh, uh, ability to really consume and mm-hmm. use what's being built. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big part of it. Um, and if I were to take it from a more activist sort of perspective, you know, what are the uses? What are the use cases in the mm-hmm. community? Where, what are the institutions going to do and provide as part of a community service? It's not just about connecting the Internet. Mm-hmm. It is about creating a community asset, leveraging that asset. And we like to take it one step further, and that's where we want to put on the table for everybody that's listening, as it's about digital economic development. Right. How do we build the digital capital in our communities? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. And that's what we're talking about doing. Excellent. Well, Mark, this has been an excellent discussion, uh, answered a whole lot of questions that we didn't get out of the New York Times yesterday. <laughs> so that, that was good. I want to thank our audience for attending. Uh, I hope everyone learned some, you know, really good stuff here. Send me email, you know, find uh, Gigabit Square's website, you know, ask questions if you have them. Uh, but definitely get engaged. I mean, if you don't play and you can't complain later that you didn't win the game because you weren't there. And uh, so, you know, let's get let's get people involved. Uh, oh, I also want to thank our advertisers, um, 
Hiawatha Broadband and CapeNet, both very good small, actually, the providers who do really good work in their communities. So for everybody, thank you very much. Again, Mark, I appreciate you being a guest on the show. Craig, thank you very much for the opportunity. Okay. Let's go join the rest of this session out here. <laughs>